Father in heaven, we have come together today and we have sung your praises. You are holy, high and lifted up, far above us. May our hearts come under you today as we listen to you, hear your word. We pray that you would speak to us by the power of the Spirit, draw us to conviction, encourage us. And Lord, you know the world we live in, the tension we have now that things are not how they're meant to be. And so as we stand here in that tension, longing for the day that you send your Son to return to us, Lord, we cry out to you, we pray, and we long for more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. It never ends, does it? Whatever it is for you. Maybe you've begun a new school year, and the work that you have to do seems harder than ever. Kids, whatever new grade you're in this year, could be looking like a long year ahead for you. But just wait till college or university when school isn't restricted to only daylight hours. You get up each day and classes, textbooks, projects, labs, and deadlines await you. The hard toil of learning never ends. But just wait till you join the workforce. And you've got to toil away at maybe a tedious job day after day just to make ends meet. And you only get a few weeks off a year. No more summer breaks for you. The hard toil of work never ends. But just wait till you own a home or have a family and work isn't restricted to work hours. It's a 24-7 thing now. The meals to make, the grass to mow, the piles of laundry or dirty dishes, the dog needs walks, the car needs repairs, the baby cries all night long, and then you get to help other people with their schoolwork or homework now. It never ends. But just wait till you're older and you get to slow down. Or can you? As your body starts breaking down. And, and start sapping your time or health or energy. And you can't do all that you used to do or hoped to do. Your long toil has taken a toll. Won't it ever end? Well, yes, it will. But not the way we want it to. Because life will end one day. Frustrating, isn't it? We can never seem to catch up or get ahead, and life just spins on and on and on until the grave. Some of us have thus become cynical or pessimistic about life. 
while others still see the joys of life that are there and and try to cling to a a glass-half-full perspective. But either way, wherever we find ourselves, I believe that all of us need to hear what God's Word has to say today. You might be surprised to hear that Scripture agrees that life can be unbelievably frustrating. So if you would, please take a Bible and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, right in the middle of your Bibles about. It's on page 553 if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. We're going to be stationed in the book of Ecclesiastes together for the next few months. But this book is like no other book in the Bible. It is unflinchingly real brutally honest about life. It can be a a perplexing read at times, while teaching us that life itself is perplexing. Doesn't always make sense. Author David Gibson uses the picture of how little kids play pretend all the time. Turning living rooms into houses or zoos or hospitals or palaces or battlefields or ball fields. But then growing up and and living in the real world can be a confusing and and painful process after that because things are not like playing pretend. Families are hard to get along with. You can't be an animal in the zoo. Hospitals are are full of suffering people, many of whom doctors can't heal. Palaces can be oppressive. Battlefields actually kill people. And athletes fail all the time. We need to learn to live as God's people in the real world, not a a make-believe world. Enter Ecclesiastes, which helps shatter our naive or unrealistic views on life. Not everything is as clean and tidy or cut and dry as we like to imagine it. And verse 1 sets the stage for us. It says that these are the words of the preacher. And in the original Hebrew, it says the words of Koheleth. And that's a a nickname, which comes from the word to collect or convene or to gather. And the the book's title, Ecclesiastes, comes from the Greek word for gathering, ekklesia. And you may recognize that word as a word that's used for church in the New Testament. So there's a preacher here, and he's speaking to a, a collection of people that he's gathered together. But who is this preacher? Who is he supposed to be? Well, look says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you know your Bible, who's that? Solomon, right? The, the richest, most powerful king Israel ever had. And the Bible actually calls him the wisest man ever. Now, many scholars make some solid arguments that Solomon himself didn't actually write this book. See, there was an accepted practice in those days to write fictional autobiographies. And that wasn't meant to be deceptive. That was meant to be creative. 
It's similar to, to writing historical fiction today or, or a movie being based on a true story. Like those aren't meant to trick us. They're meant to engage our imaginations. And so, in Ecclesiastes, we're meant to imagine Solomon preaching these things to us. It's, it's likely thoroughly based on teachings passed down from the real Solomon, and it appears fully inspired by true events in Solomon's life. After all, who better than Solomon to teach us about the futility of life? From an earthly perspective, he had everything. And it wasn't enough. Thus, whether it was Solomon, it still could have been him who wrote it. Whether it was Solomon or someone with a PhD in Solomon, I'll call the preacher Solomon in this series, as that's who we're supposed to hear. We're supposed to see him and hear him teaching these things to us. Ultimately, we still believe these are the words of God, written for our good and his glory. But man... The book starts like a bucket of ice water being dumped on our heads. As Solomon makes the claim that everything is vanity. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I'll get into what this means. But first, I'll give you the big idea of this passage. All right? And it's that we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world. Life in a fallen world is a vanity, and we experience this every day of our vain lives. I promise this is the last Greek or Hebrew stuff I'll give you today, but it is vital to understand what Solomon means by vanity, because it's used 38 times in this book. Uh, we don't even use the English word vanity that much anymore, except if we're talking about washroom furniture. <laughs> but vanity here is the Hebrew word hevel, and it literally means breath, vapor, or smoke. So picture a few months from now when you can walk outside and see your breath in the air. Or picture out blowing birthday candles, blowing out birthday candles and the smoke wafting up from them. Like it's there. You can see it. You can smell it. It's real, but then it's gone, fleeting. Now, imagine if someone told you, next time you see your breath, try to grab onto it. Or when the candles get blown out, catch the smoke. How silly is that? That's the idea behind hebel or vanity here. It's, a fl it's fleeting and temporary and transient, and it's also ungraspable, insubstantial, ephemeral, elusive, enigmatic. That's vanity. It might appear solid, but it slips right through our grasp. Now, some versions translate Hebel as meaningless. But I really think that that misses the point, because life isn't meaningless. Even life in a fallen world without, and life without God isn't meaningless. 
But life in a fallen world is a vanity. There's a, a deep futility about it. It's inevitably disappointing. I subtitled this series, Finding Wisdom and Joy in Our Frustrating and Fleeting Lives. Frustrating and fleeting. That's vanity in a nutshell. We experience the vanity of life in our fallen world. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And we may wonder, all is vanity? Really? Everything is frustrating and fleeting? The fact is, we believe and we know that there are certain things that must not be vanities. God, for one. Right? It'd be blasphemous to label him a vanity. But that's not Solomon's point. In verse 3, he'll talk about our lives being under the sun. Under the sun. Another very repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes. We live our lives under the sun. But here's the thing. Not everything in existence is under the sun. Right? There are things outside or above or beyond our physical reality here and now. But in the here and now, under the sun, our human experience is largely frustrating and fleeting. So we don't want to soften the force of Solomon's words. Let's hear him out first. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is our our lived human experience. First of all, think of how fleeting our lives can be. Okay, your grandparents always said, time flies the older you get, or it goes by so fast. And now most of you say the same thing. Right? It's, it's like a vapor coming and going. We chuckle at the shirts that say, it's weird being the same age as old people. Surprise! Life comes at you fast. Blink, and you're older or gone. Nothing seems to last. One pastor used the picture of eating cotton candy, which is basically sugar-coated air, right? You bite into it, there's a, a sweetness to it, but then it's almost instantly gone. Vanity. Other scriptures back Solomon up here. For instance, in Psalm 39, his dad, David, said this, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And that's Hevel there how fleeting we are, and how frustrating our lives can be. It's like trying to grasp at smoke. We try to grasp at lasting significance in life. I appreciate what David Gibson says about this. He says, if we try to gain control of the world and our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do, we find that the control we seek eludes us. Can't grab on. He goes on, consider knowledge and understanding. In some measure, we can understand how the world works. But 
Why does it always rain on the days when you don't bring your umbrella? Why do you feel low even when you can't really put your finger on a specific cause? Why do people you know and love die young or suffer long-term ill health while the dictator lives in prosperity into his old age? Or consider what we do with our lives. We can pour our whole life into something and it might succeed or it might fail. How much control do you really have over whether your job is secure or how healthy you will be or what will happen to interest rates and house prices over whom you will meet and what you will be doing in 10 years' time? You starting to really feel what Solomon is saying here? We know what he says is true. We just don't like it. So we'll start playing our make-believe games, acting like we'll live forever, or that we'll never suffer, or that we're in control. Imagining that what we do will leave a lasting mark of meaningful significance. And into this, Solomon steps and bursts all of our bubbles. Verse 3 says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? (laughs) Who invited this guy? (laughs) Yeah, this is the critical key question for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What's the point? What do we gain? What should we aim for? Is life worth it at all? Like I said earlier, when he says under the sun, it's talking about life in a fallen world. Romans 8 tells us that creation was subjected to futility, using the same word as vanity. The creation was subjected to futility. When did that happen? Well, way back in Genesis 3, right, when our original ancestors fell into sin, and God put a, a curse on this world, and life has been depressingly deficient since then. Futility has seeped into every pore. Vanity has touched every aspect of life. And this is essential to us reading and understanding Ecclesiastes properly. Because Solomon is talking about the world, not how God designed it, but how we damaged it. Okay, And any helplessness that we sense from Solomon is directly tied to the curse of the fall. Ecclesiastes deals with the world as it currently is. Not as it should be or how it will be. Life under the sun is is life apart from spiritual heavenly realities, apart from God even. It's life at ground level. It's the world as we can observe it with our five senses. Thus, in this book, we viscerally feel the not yet of the already and not yet. And you know that term? Christians are already saved and forgiven and redeemed 
and justified and so on, but we definitely do not yet experience all of these things in their fullness yet. Christ has already come and died and risen and ascended. He's already our Lord and Savior, but he has not yet returned for us and restored the world or righted all wrongs. And those not yet can be painfully frustrating. Even after we have Christ. We're still in the middle of the story. We're not at the beginning. We're not at the end. And Ecclesiastes really orients us to our place in the story, right here and now. But perhaps the cheerier, optimistic among us are not yet convinced. So let's consider Solomon's argument further, as I think he makes a persuasive case. He gives us at least four reasons for why we experience life as vanity in our fallen world. First of all, it's unsatisfying. Life under the sun can all seem so futile and unsatisfying. You might also say unprofitable. As the word for gain that he uses, it it really talks about profit, what's left over. Read the question in verse 3 again. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? By the way, the the toil isn't only talking about our jobs or careers. This is talking about work we could do around home, from kids' chores to, to cleaning or landscaping. This would even include work that we do for fun or leisure like hobbies or exercise. Our toil refers to any human endeavor under the sun. And it's unsatisfying. We can work our fingers to the bone. can burn the candle at both ends, trying to make a difference. And what do we have to show for all our work? What lasting profit do we earn? We think, well, what do we actually gain from all this? Because certainly we gain some things, right? We gain our paychecks, our means of living, our food, our savings, our retirements. We gain better health by working. We gain the satisfaction of jobs well done. But Solomon is asking, in the grand scheme of things, What does any of that actually give us? It's all so fleeting. Money gets spent. Food gets eaten. Health deteriorates. We're all still going to die, and we can't take any of it with us. So what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These words remind me of something Jesus asked in Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In other words, you really can gain the whole world and yet profit nothing. None of what you gain in this life can ultimately satisfy your soul. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
The next several verses then tell us, we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world as it is cyclical. You might say repetitive. Life is cyclical, like a, a hamster wheel or a belt on a treadmill. It's going round and round. Solomon first talks about the vain cycle of human generations in verse 4. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In the last 18 years, all of my grandparents have died. A generation goes. And in the same time frame, I've seen all my children be born. A generation comes. As commonly understood today, we have seven living generations in 2023. The so-called greatest generation is almost all gone. Anyone from that generation will be 100 as of next year. Then there's the silent generation, followed by the boomers, then the Gen Xers, then millennials, then Gen Z, then Generation Alpha. They're going to need a new label in a couple years. But this is sobering. Think of it this way. Boomers, who will all soon be eligible for senior discounts, got their name as baby boomers, right? Because they were, not so long ago, babies. Kids, you're all coming right now, this verse would tell you. Your generation's coming, and all of us adults are in the process of going. One day, you'll go too. Not nearly as long from now as you may think. Meanwhile, in contrast to humanity's constant turnover, the world seems unchanged. Did you see that? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Like if I drove out to the Rocky Mountains, I can see the same sights that my grandparents saw. Or the Ottawa or rivers near here have flowed the same paths for centuries. So the earth itself is not so fleeting. But our experience of it certainly is. Like when I die, the earth will keep on right on spinning just as it did before I was born. Vanity. Second, we see the vain cycle of the sun, and hence, days and nights. Verse 5, the sun rises, and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. Living under the sun means living under the sun's constant racing through our skies. A friend of mine Preach that if you feel like you get up in the morning, chase the same thing every day, go back to bed, only to get up and do the same thing the next day, you're in good company. The greatest celestial body does the same, getting up and chasing the horizon with all its might, and then disappears, only to reappear and start the cycle all over again. Pink Floyd sang something similar back in 1973. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, 
but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Such vanity. Next, we see the vain cycle of the wind in verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Even on windless days, the wind is blowing somewhere. Round and round and round. It just keeps swirling and whirling, always striving, never arriving. Think about it. The wind has these circular courses, like a a track on a a racetrack, and yet it doesn't have a destination. There's no finish line. They say the wind died down. Really, it just went somewhere else. Lots of movement, no progress. Vanity of vanities. Now, sun Wind and water all drive our weather systems. And I think he's looking at the weather here. So let's consider the vain cycle of water as well. In verse 7, it says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Like we literally call it the water cycle. Water's constantly flowing down to the sea, and it's also constantly evaporating and condensating and and raining or hailing or snowing, filling springs and streams and rivers all over again before flowing down again. Meanwhile, the sea is never full. Despite the constant flow, nothing seems to change there. I heard someone compare this to trying to blow up a leaky balloon. All is vanity. Now, these are are good things, right? The the rhythmic cycles of sun, wind, and water, they're common graces from God. They keep us alive. But we can experience even these good things as vanity because of our fallen nature's perspective. They're not how they're meant to be. From under the sun, it can all just seem to go round and round and round, like we go round and round, with no end, maybe no point. The sea may not ever be full, but I'll tell you what is full, Solomon says. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. I noted this as a third way that we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, that it is wearisome. This life under the sun can be so wearisome. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. In other words, it's wearisome beyond description. More than one can say. Some versions translate this as boring. Life is weary and dreary. Sure, we can still experience exciting and enjoyable things in life. Plenty of them. And Ecclesiastes is going to go there too. But under the sun, the repetitiveness of nature and humanity can feel wearisome. Nothing has solved the dilemma of verse 3 yet. And what do we gain from all our toil under the sun? It can make us tired just thinking about it. 
Vanity of vanities. The second part of verse 8 shows us that life is all three of unsatisfying, cyclical, and wearisome. It says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Here's what you could call the vain cycle of human senses or desires. Like water constantly flows into the sea, stimuli constantly flows into our eyes and ears. And we are never satisfied or filled either. Both are in an endless intakes process. Like right now, most of our eyes and ears are taking things in. Watching, listening, observing. But have you seen enough to be satisfied? Have your ears had their fill yet? And I'm not just talking about my rambling on. You can have your fill of that. (laughs) Have you seen enough to close your eyes and never open them again? Will you never look on your loved ones again? Never go sightseeing? Will you never watch another show? Never look at your phone again? Didn't think so. Or, have you heard enough to plug up your ears forever? You never want to hear music anymore, your favorite song. Never want to hear the voices of those around you, of your family. No, our our senses are never satisfied. There's always another sight to see or song to hear. Like when we lose our sight or our hearing, we say that our eyes or ears fail us. They let us down early. Your brain will never stop craving more. Your eyes and ears work is never done. Does that not sound wearisome at all? Endless? Disappointing? Indeed. It's all vanity. In verses 9 and 10, we see one final vain cycle in the cyclical nature of history. And with these famous words, perhaps the most famous in Ecclesiastes, we can almost hear Solomon sigh. (sighs) What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. We have a saying that history repeats itself. And in this sense, it's true. Nations rising and falling, people making a great name for themselves or a a horrible name for themselves, explorers discovering things, the strong oppressing the weak, wars with their victories and defeats, economies flourishing and collapsing, pandemics, natural disasters. We as the human race have been there, done that. We've seen it all before, we'll see it all again. Like, even fashion trends keep coming back in style every couple decades. There is nothing new under the sun. You may think, but... 
but, but we see new things every day, especially in our era of, of rapid technological development. Uh, but, but what about this? This is new, we ask. Solomon thought we might say that. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. Now, he's not saying that nothing new ever gets made or invented. His point is that we can observe like repetitive patterns in history, or also that whatever we can create is just reinventing or upgrading prior concepts. For example, video calling on handheld devices is clearly something that never existed until recent years. Right? Our ancestors would be astounded by what we can do today. However, wanting to communicate with people far away from us is nothing new. That's been before. Before Zoom, it was cell phones. Before cell phones, it was landline phones. Before telephones, it was telegraphs. Before telegraphs, there was the mail system. We actually had to write stuff down by hand. Before mail, there were messengers on horseback. Like our methods may have improved dr drastically, but we haven't changed at all. We regurgitate the same themes. Nothing breaks the, the frustrating cycles of human experience. So we ask, what am I actually contributing to the world? What difference am I making? It's vanity. Philip Ryken concludes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And if it ever seems like there really is something new under the sun, it is only because we have forgotten what happened before. Speaking of which, last verse, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So here's one final way we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, that it is forgettable. Life in our fallen world can be so forgettable. And even if it's not, it's still forgotten. Ecclesiastes is going to discuss the forgettable nature of our lives quite a bit. And here it introduces it. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Like We remember the tiniest fraction of things and people from history gone by, when you really think about it. And the things of today or tomorrow will be totally forgotten by future generations. For example, how many people could you name who fought in World War II? One, two, five. Who were they? A grandparent? Someone they made a movie about? How much do you really know about them? What did they do in the war? Or maybe you couldn't name a single person. It wouldn't be surprising. There's only one person in our entire church right now who would know any of the people named on this plaque over here. 
or on some of the boards at the back there. Yeah, this was less than 80 years ago. Wasn't that long ago. 127 million people were mobilized during World War II. So, do you think your great-grandchildren will remember you in 2100, 80 years from now? Think again. Truly, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So, what's the point? All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In this fallen world, we don't profit from our toil because we eventually die and are forgotten. That's the ultimate answer. Like We can get excited about all kinds of potential futures we envision for ourselves, a fulfilling career, a loving spouse, a happy family, a beautiful home, a nice retirement, but that will come and go for us just like it has for everyone else under the sun. Again, this doesn't make these things meaningless or pointless but it does make them ultimately unfulfilling. Like I put it, frustrating and fleeting. We are limited creatures living brief lives that are largely outside of our control. Yet we spend most of life trying to escape the constraints of our human condition. So Ecclesiastes takes us by the scruff of our shirts and shakes us out of our delusion. We're not God. We can't be God. We will all die one day. David Gibson calls us out, saying, we avoid this reality by playing let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Enough! Can we stop playing pretend already? You depressed yet? I've heard it said that Ecclesiastes means to depress us into dependence. To depress us into dependence. I'm sure it doesn't want to make us clinically depressed or downcast, or pessimistic. 
But I would agree that Ecclesiastes wants to disillusion us with many things of this life that we get overly enamored with, distracted by, or put too much stock in. Let me say that again. Ecclesiastes wants to disillusion us with many things of this life that we get overly enamored with, distracted by, or put too much stock in. Like the fact is, some of us should be far more sobered up than we are over this fallen world. Some of us need to stop obsessively pursuing things that are merely vanity. And some of us need our naive hope in humanity ripped out of us and crushed. I want to offer you a final point that you won't see explicitly spelled out in the text, but I believe it is a necessary implication from all that we've read today. Because if there's a time and a place called under the sun, we wonder, is there a time and place outside of this fallen world? Is there a, a reality that is not so overrun by all the cursed toil of Vanity Fair? And yes, see, we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, which awakens us to our need for something beyond this world. The vanity of life in a fallen world awakens us to our need for something beyond this world, or rather, someone beyond this world. We need, we need the one who entered into our broken history and experienced life like we do before taking the full weight of the futility of our sin on himself in his death. We need the one who broke the deathly cycle of human experience by rising again. Now, there was something new. We need the one who promised to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And now we confess that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In reality, in truth, the new has come. We need the one who, set, who will set creation free from its bondage to corruption and futility. We need the one who promises to bring about a new heavens and a new earth with a new Jerusalem that won't even need a son anymore. We need the one declaring, behold, I am making all things new. He who was and is and is to come and who will never be forgotten. Like the frustrating vanity of this world will not last forever. And so we today, we cling to our hope of a new world. And yet, and yet, and yet, 
that's not here yet. We're still in need right now. When Jesus came, he didn't put an immediate end to all the vaporous vanity of life. He didn't undo all the frustrating futility that we experience. Yes, he, he provided an eternal solution to all our fallenness, to our fallen world. And yet, he didn't take his people out of this fallen world. And so we can rightly feel the not yet of today and cry out with Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then may we come disillusioned and depressed into dependence on the Lord trusting wholly in the God in heaven who rules over the sun. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts to your reality today. May we forsake all the make-believe games that we play with this life. Lord, we need you to open our eyes to this. This is in your word. We want to hear it, as hard as it might be sometimes. So, Lord, would you convict us of our sin, draw us to your cross, where we can see your mercy and your forgiveness flow down for us. And there, may we take all the vain things that charm us most, and sacrifice them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.